Wonderful. Well, it's great to see you all, and we are going to wrap up our journey through Joseph's life today. We've been working on this for a bit. We had a a substantial break in the middle, and then I would really like to bring this story of going through Joseph's life at the end of chapter, sorry, the book of Genesis to a fitting conclusion instead of just letting it trail on and on and on like a run-on sentence with a lack of punctuation and maybe a period or a comma here or a hyphenated thing there or semicolon, whatever those are used for in some place, but it just goes on and on and nobody knows when it's going to end. That's what we don't want to happen. So if you've been with us, we've been going through the life of Joseph. And we started off by looking at those early days when God was singling him out for a mission and a purpose and speaking to him and his family by giving Joseph dreams. Dreams about uh, being a lord over food and dreams of being royalty over his family. And we looked at how his brothers responded with jealousy and envy and unbelief and decided to try to put an end to God's plans by getting rid of their brother and they sold him into slavery in Egypt and tricked their father by staining his coat with blood and um, deceiving him. And then we took a little side tour and followed Joseph's older brother Judah as he left the family and went to try to just live a normal life somewhere away from where his family dynamics reminded him of his guilt and how God pursued him with some severe circumstances in his life, but humbled him through his daughter-in-law, who gave him children through a deception of her own, but broke his pride in his heart as he confessed that this this daughter-in-law, Tamar, was more righteous than him. And then we came back to the family dynamics, or we followed, sorry, Joseph into Egypt, where he spent a chapter in Potiphar's house. And kind of fried all of our cultural sensibilities by becoming a slave and then being one of the best slaves ever. And serving his foreign master who had bought him at a slave market and bringing God's blessing onto this Egyptian's home by faithful service. Until his wife decided that Joseph was too handsome for her to leave alone and after multiple attempts to seduce and then overpower him, He was accused of um, assaulting her and was thrown in prison, the same prison that probably belonged to Potiphar, his master. And in the next chapter, Joseph blew our socks off again by being a faithful servant to most likely Potiphar again, but now in prison instead of a house. And he took care of Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker and provided for them some interpretations of dreams hoping that as he did them a good turn, that one of them at least would remember him and get him out of prison, but he was forgotten by the cupbearer when his dream came true. And then we went through the chapter of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, having his dreams about the sickly cows swallowing up the fat cows and the sickly grain swallowing up the good grain. And and Joseph was summoned from the pit to Pharaoh's presence to interpret these dreams and he interpreted them correctly that there was going to be a seven years of blessing on the land, seven years of wonderful harvests, followed by seven years of famine so severe that no one would even remember anymore what it was like to have a harvest. 
so bad that there is nothing humanly possible to do about it unless God told you what was coming and you did something beforehand. And Joseph suggested to Pharaoh that they would find somebody who would store up grain against this coming famine. And Pharaoh, perhaps in one of the acts of humble faith, one of the greatest acts of humble faith in all of Scripture, hands over his entire kingdom publicly to a slave, prisoner, Hebrew, and the Egyptians are all racist against the Hebrews and won't even eat with them. He hands over his entire family and life to this Joseph because he sees that God is with Joseph. And one of the things I was emphasizing last time was that this is a picture of what salvation in Christ is like. You see that God is saving the world through his son Jesus and you give him everything. Because everything that, that Jesus is in charge of God will care for and bless or take through the fire. And so what, whoever you are, whatever you've got, whether you think you've got a lot or whether you think you've got nothing, the response is the same. This, Jesus Christ is God's man and God's savior. And so you give him everything you can give him without dying because Jesus is in charge of how long we live. That's not our job. That's his. And so now what I want to do is quickly cover about seven chapters. We've been going chapter by chapter, and now I want to go through seven chapters, actually eight. And um, so really quickly, this is what happens in the next seven chapters. We'll do some clicking here. So Joseph is reigning over Egypt, and he reigns over Egypt for the seven years of plenty. And then the famine comes, and Joseph has decided that he's going to camp out at the place where people come to get grain from him probably on purpose. And eventually, after like a year, maybe two years, Joseph's brothers are out of food. Like that's how bad the famine is. is it doesn't, they're, they're, all the plenty of the seven years doesn't even last one year. That's crazy. And so his brothers come to him and he pretends to not be their brother. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so he um, accuses them of being spies. And he says, you guys aren't just a bunch of brothers coming here to get food. You're a bunch of spies. And the idea being that um, if you wanted to invade a foreign country, you wouldn't do what you do nowadays where you just like send satellites over them and take pictures and stuff. You actually have to send people in there and they would scout around and they pretend to be other people. And so he accuses them of being spies that are getting ready for an invasion, which kind of makes sense because if you were a surrounding nation around Egypt and you knew they had all the food, you might think to yourself, why don't we just try to conquer them and take all their food? And so it does make sense. It's not crazy to think that you would be looking for spies in these people coming into Egypt. But he accuses them of being spies and he throws them into prison for three days. And then after a while he says, I'm going to test you. You go back um, and you bring this brother Benjamin because Benjamin got kept at home because Jacob, the dad, didn't want to lose both of his sons by Rachel. And so he says to them, you go back and get this Benjamin and you bring him to me and then I'll believe you. And so he lets them go. And interestingly, he puts the silver that they'd given him back in their sack. And it's almost like a recreation of when he was thrown in prison because they're leaving one of their brothers behind, Simeon, in the prison and they're going home with a bunch of silver, which is exactly what happened with Joseph when they bartered him away as a slave. They left one of their brothers behind down in Egypt and they went home with a bunch of silver. 
And the brothers are panicking. They don't know what to do here. They, 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 they're freaked out. And even when they were in prison, they, they started realizing this bad stuff is happening to us because of what we did to our brother. So they're really, really freaked out. Well, a little bit later, they don't want to go back. And their dad is mad at them for this whole Benjamin thing. And Joseph, Judas pipes up and says, look, I will make sure on the penalty of my life, I will make sure Benjamin's okay, but we have to go back or we're all going to die. And so they go back a second time and um, Joseph receives them and acknowledges Benjamin's presence there and then provides a feast for them and then sends them back again. But he pulls another trick and he's put one of his cups in Benjamin's sack and he sends his servants after the brothers and says, you guys have stolen my master's cup. And they said, no, we haven't. And whoever has done this, you can, you can kill or throw in prison. And they find the cup in Benjamin's sack and all the brothers just begin to just weep and wail right there. And as changed people, they all go back with Benjamin. And Joseph's servant just keeps saying, you don't have to come, I'll just bring back this criminal. Don't worry about it, I'll just bring back this criminal. But all the brothers say, what, what are we going to do? We have to go. And they all go back to Joseph. And Joseph is, has all the brothers here, and they're arguing, and they're panicking. And Joseph's saying, you guys can leave, I'll just keep this guy. And he's put them in the same position they were in before. One brother, one favored brother. You guys can all go back to your happy lives. All you have to do is leave this one favored brother behind. And eventually Judah stands up and says to Joseph, not knowing it's him, um, just please take my life instead because if Benjamin doesn't go home, our father's going to die. And Joseph breaks down and starts crying and then reveals himself and invites them all to come down to Egypt. And he says, there's going to be like another five years of this famine, so you have to come down. And don't worry, I'll take care of you. And there's this beautiful scene where they go back. Excuse me. I love this story so much. They go back and they start telling Jacob that Joseph's in Egypt. And he won't believe it. I love this book. It's so real. Like, Jacob's just like, I don't believe you. No, you don't understand. Joseph's alive. Look at all he sent. Joseph sends all this stuff, all this treasure back. And he's like, I I won't believe you. And it actually takes him a while to, to believe because he's been grieving so long. And that's what grieving people are like. They don't want to believe good stuff. No, I refuse. And they have to work it into him. And he finally comes back. And there's this great scene where Joseph and Jacob are reunited in the land of Goshen. And then they are presented to, to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, you can live wherever you want. Which is typically what happens when kings are made stinking rich by somebody. They don't mind sharing some of that with the guy who makes them stinking rich like Joseph did. And the family moves down and is living in Goshen. And um, they spend about 17 years together in Egypt. And then Jacob is going to die, and so he blesses the brothers. Sorry, here's the reveal. Here's the father and the son reunited. And so Jacob blesses his sons or prays over them, sometimes prophesies over them right before he passes away, and then he dies. And they spend some time returning Jacob to his homeland in Canaan, and there's this humongous royal funeral for him. And then I want to come into Genesis chapter 50, because this is a really important part. It's, it's, it's one of the most important parts of all of Scripture, what happens here. And I want to take us to this scene in Genesis chapter 50, 
starting in verse 15. And I just want to read through this, this portion with us. And I'm going to put up on the screen kind of what is the double underlined section of it for us. Genesis chapter 50, starting verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sins because of the evil they did to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of your servants, of the God of your father. That was their message. It says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them. spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. God of Joseph and Jacob and his brothers, I invite you to come afresh through your Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would make this morning so holy for your glory. Father, we're going to talk about things that we don't want to talk about, things that are painful to talk about. And I pray, Lord, that you would come and the weight of God, the kavod of God, the glory of God would settle upon us. And that you would cause us to be a people like Joseph. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning I want to I talk about biblical responses to suffering and evil out of the story of Joseph, because this is what this chapter is about. And in one sense, this is what the whole book of Genesis is about. God's world is broken by sin, broken by sin and cursed by God because of sin. What's going to happen? What do you do? And I want to say this morning... I just want to look at this story and other places in the Bible to give us insight into how Joseph could have become the man he did and say these words to his brothers. To have a heart like Joseph's that could say to the brothers that sold you into slavery, don't worry, God meant it for good. And I'll take care of you. These are impossible things for a human heart to say unless you know God. Amen? And one of the things about me is I, there, there is a difference between being able to read the Bible and kind of explain it, sometimes explain it away. And I, I want to get to the place where I will say 
what the Bible says. You know, sometimes we read the Bible, hard things in the Bible, and we can say, well, when Joseph said God meant it for good, he may have meant this, and he may have meant that, and he may have, he may have meant a bunch of things. I, I don't care about explaining Joseph's heart. I want to have his heart. I don't care about the words he said. I want to be able to say the words he said. Does that make sense? Like, if you can't say it, it's not in here, which means it's not here, which means I don't get it yet. So anyhow, I'm, I'm going to get lost. Just so you know, I'm already lost, but your seats are still comfortable, so don't worry. All right. Now, I'm indebted to John Frame for pointing this out. He's a writer I enjoy, but... In general, when the Bible is talking about human suffering and evil, there are kind of three responses that God has or people have to the presence of suffering and evil in the world. The three responses. The first one is, who are you to judge what God is doing in regard to these things? The second is, God is working for the greater good in the midst of suffering and evil. And the third one is, God is able to comfort anyone who is enduring suffering or evil. These are the three biblical responses that are throughout Scripture. And if you're reading the Bible regularly, you can just be on the lookout for these things. But these are the three. And maybe there's other ones, but this is a good generalization. When it comes to thinking about suffering and evil, and how God rules over these things and works through these things. How is it possible that Joseph could say, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good? Three biblical responses, and I want to kind of work through each one. Because what Joseph says is kind of scandalous. Okay? Um, I like to joke that Joseph was the world's first Calvinist with an offensively high view of God's sovereignty in life, that he could, he could say to his own enslaving and being sold for money by his own family members that God meant it for good, and he uses the same word. Yeah, you guys meant evil against me. You thought about it. You desired it. You brought it about. But don't worry, because God meant it for good. And he doesn't use one of those words that sometimes we can use to let God off the hook when it comes to stuff like this. Like he allowed it, or he permitted it, or he worked it into his plan, or he turned it for good. He uses the same level of intentionality of his brother's envious offense and evil and betrayal and near murder, the same amount of intention that they had to try to destroy Joseph. Joseph himself, not me trying to explain anything or justify anything. Joseph himself, respect the voice, Joseph himself says God intended the same amount of goodness through the exact same human actions. And we find that really hard to hear. Anybody? Somebody? Is it just me? And the thing, one of the things I like to just remind myself of before I even get to the three things is that, like, Joseph is not trying to win an argument here. He's not trying to defend anything here. He's actually trying to calm a bunch of people who think 
he's about to kill them. And he turns to the sovereignty of God to say, don't worry. I see God in everything that happened. I will take care of you. Who are you to judge? This is the least comfortable one, so we're going to go, we're going to do it first, get to pull the band-aid off, and ah, why did I have so many arm hairs? We're going to take care of this right away, and then we're going to work on the greater good, and then we'll go to God will comfort. Who are you to judge? We hear Jacob himself say that when it comes to how God rules over evil or rules through evil, rules over suffering, rules through suffering, he himself says, I'm not going to judge God. His brothers come to him saying, your father said you have to forgive us. He's totally, they're totally lying, by the way. When you're reading Old Testament stories, remember we've been talking about like, you, you're supposed to actually test what people say. There is zero evidence in, in Genesis that Jacob ever said that to his sons. Because why wouldn't he have said that himself <laughs> to them? Joseph was right there when he died. And they're trying to, well, sometime when you weren't around, Joseph, I know you're around a lot, but sometime when you weren't around, your dad said, go easy on your brothers. They're totally lying. They're panicking. They're panicking and they're lying because they feel completely vulnerable. He has all the authority in the world and a good memory. And they're still underneath the guilt and shame of what they've done. Um, Did you know it's actually very difficult for the human heart to feel forgiven? Because we don't deserve it. And we know it. Nobody in this room feels as forgiven as they are by God. And so we get squishy and we get weird and we get deceptive and we get manipulative and we do all kinds of things. Christian, we're the brothers usually. Nobody in this room feels in their knower. And I don't mean in like the feeling, like the feely, like the shallow part, but like that part of you that believes. Nobody, nobody feels as forgiven by God as they are. Just like the brothers didn't feel as forgiven by Joseph as they were. And Joseph had forgiven them so completely that when he hears that they think they still need to do something, he weeps. That they think they need to apologize again. Or that they're afraid of him. 17 years he's been taking care of them. Our hearts are so broken. But maybe you could go away, go just trying to tell yourself, heart, you're, you are actually forgiven by God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart, sorry, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are forgiven by God for your sins. So don't make Jesus cry anymore. Not that I think he cries about this stuff. But you know what I'm talking about. 
Anyhow, how does Joseph get here? How does he live here? How is he so free from his anger against his brothers that he cries? He weeps over their fear of him. It starts off with him not trying to be God. Amen. And this is, we all try to, right? Remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the fruit's right there. The serpent says, eat this fruit and you'll become like God. And they ate the fruit. And ever since then, then they and all of their children have wanted to be God. And to judge good and evil. Including whether or not God is good or evil by what he does. Especially in how he rules through and over evil and suffering. We want to judge God. And Joseph's just like, not going there. His brothers say, forgive us. Do you think I think I'm God? No, I'm not judging. God promised me I'd be a prince. He promised me I'd take care of people's food. And he totally worked it out. I wasn't expecting how it was supposed to go. I didn't see the slavery. I wasn't expecting the prison time. I didn't have that part figured out. But he absolutely did what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it. And I'm not God to judge. And I'm not God's judge. And so... That's where it all starts. And this theme, okay, there is suffering and evil in the world. Why? Well, because we sinned. And because God told us if we sinned, we'd die. And he told us that it was going to happen. And the whole world was broken because of human rebellion against God. But we still want to question why it's going on. And sometimes God's response is just, shut up. You don't need to begin to begin to begin to be able to judge. You think about the book of Job. Job was already fairly far down the road of not trying to be God's judge. You might remember Job was God's most favorite guy in the whole world. And because of that, Satan wanted to destroy him and prove that Job didn't love God. He actually loved the stuff God gave him. And so first, in like one day, Job loses all his kids and all his property. And Job says in Job chapter 1 verse 21... The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like he's not judging God for the sufferings that just catastrophically came on him. And even a little bit later when Satan afflicts him with sickness and sores and his wife comes up to him and says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? There's a good marriage counseling title of a book. Just tell your spouse to curse God and die. Job responds to her, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? He's saying, I'm I'm not, I'm trying not to judge here what's going on. But you still have the whole book of Job as, as Job complaining about how God rules the world. And then God shows up in chapter 38 in a, in a tornado. In one of the most destructive forces on the world, he shows up, he just rides his tornado. Some of you ride lawnmowers and there's a little bit of wind underneath there. When God takes his lawnmower to to someone's house. They saw a lawnmower driving down a street. The guys obviously couldn't pay for his car insurance, and so he was traveling the other way. And that's a bit of wind under there, but God, when he drives into town on his lawnmower, it, it throws vans. It tears down houses. And he shows up at Job's house, and he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Put on your big boy shorts, Job. We're going to have a conversation. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And who stretched out the line upon it? 
on what word its base is sunk and who laid its cornerstone. And when all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, and he goes on like this for like a chapter or two, just asking Job, do you think you even have a clue how creation works? Where were you when I started matter? Where were you when I invented gravity? Where were you when I invented molecules? Where were you when I did all this stuff? Why don't, and it's almost like, I, like, I enjoy this joke, you know, it's, it's like you're like, God, I don't like how you're running the universe. And God could say, well, okay, why don't you show me your universe and, and I'll see how you run it and I'll learn a thing from you. You just show me how, how's your universe doing? Did you manage to get them not to fall in your universe? To which we respond is, I, I can't even keep my iPhone data plan managed. Well, I don't like how you made people and what they do. And God could just say, well, here's a lump of dirt and a bone. Why don't you make people? Why don't you make your own image bearers and you show me how you God them? It's like, I can't even keep a plant alive. But God's not done with that. He wants to give Job a little lesson in Godhood. And in chapter 40, he says... And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job replies, he's, he, he knows he's not going to win this one. And so he says, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. So he's already on the ground. He's counted to three. And he's tapped the mat, but God's going for round two here. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Remember, this is God talking to someone who buried seven children recently. Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself in majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is a proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge you that your own right hand can save you. And it's almost like God would say to us when we want to criticize and condemn what, what he's doing in the world, he would say, okay, I, I understand you're something, so why don't you just make yourself amazingly glorious? Why don't you make your clothes shine like lightning? Remember the transfiguration when Jesus' face turned into the sun and his clothes became whiter than lightning? Why don't you just do that? Why don't you impress everybody? Make it so your face is just so glowing bright that no one can look at you and everyone's sun tanning and you can rent out your face in greenhouses during the winter. Why don't you make your light, your clothes so bright bright that people are getting electrocuted around you just show us show everyone your glory your godhood just do it or maybe make a big war chariot like in ezekiel and ride through this clouds where you don't have wheels on your war chariot you have angels angels for wheels why don't you show everyone your glory by making a car with angels for wheels and you're just riding around the world making earthquakes happen wherever you go but you're so holy and glorious that you won't even sit on the seat of the heavenly war chariot you're going to be a million miles above it because you're so holy and glorious that you won't even sit on your own throne waiting Okay, well, why don't you just destroy the world because of its sin? You can see everything that's going wrong. Why don't you just destroy North Korea? Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Humble every prime minister. Go ahead, right now. Afflict them. Afflict them with diseases, right now. Go ahead. I'm waiting. Humble them all. 
Find, find all the pride in the world and bring it low. Go ahead. Waiting. It is both manly and healthy to never want to judge God. To just tell your soul, I'm not God's judge with whatever happens. He's in control. He's glorious. And I can't even begin to do it. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. And so I won't. And sometimes when we come here, we can start to feel, well, yeah, but if I do that, then aren't I making myself vulnerable for God? Or aren't I just letting, admitting that bad things can happen to me? And it's like, actually, when you give up trying to be God's judge, what happens is it starts, it, it feels like you've stopped trying to pull a tank uphill. It feels like you've stopped trying to hold up a stadium. It feels like you're not trying to be God, which you can't do but it's really stressful if you try. Anybody? And so Joseph starts there. He starts with, I'm not God, and I'm not going to judge how God's been ruling over the suffering and evil of my life. Crazy. 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 And then he starts talking about the greater good. Uh, We'll leave Romans 9. Joseph says, you meant evil against me. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't diminish it. You guys really did mean evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, this is a faith statement for sure, for sure. That he could look back and think back to the enslavings and the cursings and and say over it, you know, God God actually was doing a good thing through this and on purpose. And this, what I mean by this is a faith statement is that one of the things about suffering and evil is our response to it when it is happening is is almost always the knee jerk. Um, God can't do anything good with this, right? Well, that's, isn't that, the, it's, it's bad, which means it's not good. How could it be good if it's bad? How could it be good if it's evil? How can it be good if it's suffering? Like you can't, we can't go both places at the same time in the moment for sure, most of the time. But looking back, Joseph is saying, this was good that you did that. And God was meaning it for good thing because if you hadn't sent me down to Egypt, we'd all be dead. And so God forecast that this was going to be happening through my dreams, and God brought it about the way he saw fit, and he was intending good for Egypt and all the surrounding people and me and you guys through doing this. The Apostle Paul, through the Spirit, writes something very similar in Romans eight twenty eight. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. One of the great things about this Joseph story is it gives you a story, a real story that you can actually sink your brain into because you can read Romans 8.28 and think, well, it sounds nice, but not my life. 
it's not possible that the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, could actually be working everything in my life for good. But then you can look at Joseph's life and say, wow, he actually did a good job with that one. Because that was really bad. Like about as bad as it gets bad. And he made it turn out really good. Like almost as good as it gets good. And so we'll all have different stories, right? God, God's a really good novelist. He, he can pump out a different story every few minutes. He's burned through like a thousand keyboards. Just working these things out. And there's always kind of different plot twists. Same theme, right? Promise, pit, glorification, grace. It's the same theme. First you meet God, then you die, then you're raised from the dead, and then you do good through all what you've learned, right? Same storyline, which is like every storyline. Like, didn't Iron Man die in that latest movie? Like, somebody important had to die or else it's a bad story, right? Anybody? Every good movie rips off Jesus' story every time, every time, every time, every time, every time, every time, every time. And then the ones that don't rip it off, you're just kind of like, something's missing with that story. Am I right or am I right? Those are your two options. You get to choose. Some ways that God uses real suffering and real evil for good. Um, Romans 8, sorry, Romans chapter 5. He creates Christ's character in us. I think I'll read it. It's probably worthwhile. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we've been made right with God by trusting in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. And through him, we have also obtained faith by faith, sorry, access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Say what? Thank you. I expect you to rejoice in your sufferings, young man. Your parents will let me know. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And even going back to Romans 8, where he says, all things must work together for the good, it goes on by saying, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, we don't like it, but suffering in faith makes us more like Jesus, which is good. Both for you and everyone who has the pleasure of living with you. Somebody once who was going through a really hard period at this church once said, I know that suffering makes us more useful to other people, but I don't want to become more useful. (laughs) In the moment, yeah, nobody wants it when it's at its worst. But the reality is, is that if you love God, if you believe in Jesus, if you've been called, God is working for the greater good. And he is able to do it. That's what Joseph life, Joseph's life shows us. He is powerful enough, wise enough, and good enough to do it. Amen? 
on paper, you can't make the algebra from brothers sold into slavery to saving nations from a famine. You can't make that math work. God did it without breaking a sweat. Um, we suffer for others' good sometime. The Apostle Paul writing in Colossians says, you know, I, I rejoice in my sufferings and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking for your sake. Paul being in prison encouraged the church. Okay, so this isn't so much about him directly, but his imprisonment for preaching, the church was like, whoa, this is serious. We better take our faith serious. We better, but, oh, we can't just depend on Paul to show up because he's in prison. Maybe we should have to take care of our own church sometime. And so Paul sees his imprisonment as blessing the church as he suffers with a good attitude. Uh, labor. Anybody? Anybody come into the world without somebody suffering? Anybody born in a synthetic robo-womb yet? It's coming, but not yet. No. There was a living human being who suffered for you to have your life. Hmm. Interesting that. Human suffering and evil and how God deals with it and responds to it also displays his glory. I'll read this one as well because it's important. The Apostle Paul, who's getting rejected by his church but for not being cool enough and suave enough and YouTube video awesome enough, is talking about how God won't stop making him weak and causing him to suffer. Let's find the right place to start. He says in chapter 12, starting in verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, because God took him to heaven once or twice or three times or who knows what, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me. Question, are Satan's messengers good or evil? They tend to be evil. If someone shows up at your door and it's not the Amazon guy like you were expecting, it's like Satan's RS delivery services, don't unlock it. Okay, just don't. Just just slip into your shakanakas right there and just <laughs> until that, that thing is gone. But in Paul's per, instance, um, he was given a thorn in the flesh from the Lord, a messenger of Satan to harass him, to keep him from being conceited. Three times, he says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. And you could keep going on, but he doesn't. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Paul is saying, my life never stops having satanic harassment so that everyone will know that it's the glory of Jesus causing these things and not my personal success. And that's good. Because if God does stuff and the people who see it just think that it's because Rob's so special, it's not a good thing for them or him. Everybody loses. And finally, 
biblically, when it comes to suffering and evil, that we know started because of the fall and because of human rebellion, God rules over it in such a way that we can't judge him, and it's not wise to start, and a humble heart is the beginning of wisdom. I think somebody once said something like, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if they didn't, then you heard it here first, and you can put little memes out there with a little dash, Pastor Rob, on there. But not judging the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And for God's people, everything is working for their good and the display of God's glory, which is the same thing. That's a different sermon. And number three, God is able to comfort in the midst of suffering, in the midst of human evil. God is able to comfort And I don't see this particularly in just Genesis chapter 50, but you might remember last message ago. I know a week is a long time and I don't even remember anything. It's really good to have a wife who remembers what you wore to the last sermon. (laughs) Because otherwise you always think the same outfit is great every week and people are just going to think, you boy, did you buy seven of the same pants when you went to the store? Which I would. I absolutely would, because the next time you go back for pants, those pants aren't there anymore. Have you ever noticed that? Where you go back to buy the same socks, and they've changed the sock formula on you. It's got the same polo logo, but they've absolutely changed the polyester to cotton blend ratio, and it just is not the same. I love you, hon. God is working my personality for your good. I promise it's in Scripture. All right. After Joseph is taken out of prison, he, he has, he's given two children. Remember what he names the first one? He says he names the first one Manasseh because the Lord, sorry, and he says, God has made me forget all my hardships in all my father's house. And what he doesn't mean is like, I was walking through the granary one day and a big basket of wheat hit my head and who am I? What's going on here? He didn't forget. He means that God comforted him, him to the point that God's goodness was way bigger than his grieving. That's what, that's what he meant when he named his child Manasseh. God's made me forget. He, he means my experience of God, is he's been good to me. He's comforted me to the point where I see that his goodness is bigger than my grieving. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And one of the things that bugs us about talking about suffering and evil so much is the fact that it hurts right? Isn't that why it bothers us so much to hear about bad things happening, to experience bad things happening, grief, loss, bad things happening in people we love? One of the things that's the hardest part about it is that it hurts, right? If receiving evil against you felt good, well, then we tend to want it, and and then it explodes later on. But if suffering felt good, it wouldn't be suffering. That's the point. You know what I mean? Nobody, nobody 
wants more kidney stones because it's so awesome to pass those things. And so one of the reasons that we can get angry at the Lord and frustrated with the Lord and turn from the Lord or shake our fist at the Lord is because of the pain. Amen? And the anxieties and the sleeplessness and the loss and the gut-wrenching and all that stuff. And one of God's responses in his word is, I'm able to comfort you. If you'll look to me, if you'll wait for me, I'm able to comfort. And that was Joseph's testimony. It didn't happen right away. He actually had years of hardship. But eventually, his, God's comfort came to him so powerfully that he had to admit, God's comfort is bigger than my pains. And that's part of why when his brothers come to him and say, please forgive us for the evil we did, he, he comforted them. He literally was comforting them out of the comfort that God had given him in the midst of his own afflictions. He's saying, I'm not going to kill you. I want to comfort you. I'll take care of you. I'll feed you. I'm going to keep you alive. Just like God did to me. And just as a little side note, I noticed that Joseph, who is this man who found the comfort of God in his life, he cries a lot. Like a lot, a lot. One of the things about Old Testament stories is that whenever repetitions happen, you're supposed to pay attention. They love repeating things that are important. And as I was reading through chapter 42 and on, it's like Joseph never seems to stop crying. His brothers come for food. He throws them in jail. He overhears them talking about how guilty they feel about imprisoning him. And he starts to cry. And then he sends them away. And they come back. And he sees Benjamin. And he starts to cry. And then he sends them all away and then brings them all back with the whole cup thing. And Judah starts to... um, say, take me instead of my brother, and, and Joseph's going to lose it so hard that he even sends out all the Egyptians, which so is just him and his brothers, and he starts to just bawl and wail so loud that it says all the Egyptians heard it, and even Pharaoh heard it. He had the fushlups, he was crapping, he was doing the... <laughs> he was all the way gone. So that Pharaoh's kind of like, what is that red-hot blubbering mess I hear? And then he sends them to go get his dad. And when he meets Jacob, he weeps on his neck. It says that he fell on his neck and began to weep. And then the Hebrew has this word, oath, at the end of it, which is translated in the ESV, at least, for a good long while. And I don't know of any other time it says that in the Old Testament, where it's just like, it gives you the picture that Joseph did not stop crying for minutes at least, as just the years of loss We're coming out through this comforting thing of weeping in the presence of God. And then when his father dies, he falls on him weeping. And then when the brothers say, please forgive us, he responds by weeping. And I think there might be just some insight for us. Most of us here probably don't cry enough in the presence of God. When you cry, it's being vulnerable. When you cry, it exposes you to being made fun of. And sometimes it's not the right time to cry, right? Like... Sure, the Jets got knocked out in the first round again. And the sun came up. Like, that's just what you expect. You don't need to cry about that. You know, the Jets had another bad season. So what else is new? Why don't you start betting against them and make some money? You know what I mean? But it is part of the Christian life to be a weeping in the presence of God person. And I think this was one of the main avenues that Scripture is showing us the comfort of God came to him in all his troubles. 
he knew how to turn and turn to God and weep in the presence of God and receive the comfort from God that came that way. God promises us that at the end of time, we will all be comforted. In Revelations 21, verses 3 and 4, there's that beautiful picture where God says, at the end of time, he, he will wipe every tear away. Because there's lots of tears that need to be teared. Because there's been lots of suffering and there's lots of evil, but don't worry, God will bring us to a state of comfort that we won't, we won't remember it anymore. Thank you, everybody. You have been wonderful. I just want to end by saying this. This kind of stuff is, is not... I'm not presenting you these, these perspectives on suffering and evil. God says, whatever you do when you're suffering, don't try to be me or judge me. It's not going to work out well. Whatever you do in the midst of your suffering, hold on by knowing that I'm working for good. And whatever you do in your suffering, hold on by knowing that I am able to comfort you. I'm God Almighty, and I am able to bring comfort to you eventually, at the right time in the right way. This isn't small potatoes, and I'm not saying this so that you can live your best life now. The book of Genesis started with the promise that God would send a seed who would destroy the works of Satan in the world. And the book of Genesis ends with a picture of Jesus and Joseph who saves the people of God by learning how to do this in the midst of his sufferings. He does not judge the Lord. He believes in God's good plan and he knows that God will give him the strength he needs to accomplish the purpose. And this is how Jesus overcame Satan as well. The father told him to go to the cross to die for sins he never committed and to experience the wrath of God that we will never experience. And Jesus went because he was not the Father's judge, and he always submitted to his will, and he believed that even though he would embrace weakness to the point of death, God was going to bring him out of the grave. And he knew that his Father would give him everything he needed to do that job, including... You remember the story of Jesus praying in Gethsemane. His stress is so bad, he's sweating drops of blood, and the Father even has to send him an angel to strengthen him. His suffering in the face of going to the cross is so bad that an angel had to come and strengthen him. And Jesus did it. And we're saved. Undeserving by free grace, as a rich gift. We're saved and loved and chosen and held because Jesus did it. Just like Joseph did it, he conquered Satan. And we're the church, the body of Jesus, who do Jesus' mission until Jesus returns. How do we conquer Satan? It's the same strategy. Don't judge God for how your life has gone or what you're in the middle of. You can't win and you don't know what he's doing. Number two, hold on to a promise that God is working for good, both your good and other people's good through this. 
And number three, get real when you need the comfort of God. Some of us were just so hurting because we won't admit, God, I need you to comfort me. I need you. Maybe even start practicing. Go to the prayer closet and just say, God, would you help me to weep if there's something to weep over? Just in your presence. Honor God by trusting him enough to, to weep before him. To be vulnerable and cry. Instead of in front of the church. You don't have to uh, be a preacher to cry. Amen? Can we worship? Worship team, why don't you come up? Why don't you stand in prayer? Thank you so much for your patience. Father, I just, I want to give you Calvary Chapel, Lord. If any one of us knew like you knew all the pain and suffering and, and evil we're enduring at just this church, I think it would it could destroy any one of us. And God, you know us so intimately and you really do care. Jesus, you wept at the funeral of Lazarus. Jesus, you wept going into Jerusalem knowing that they would reject you. Jesus, you wept before you went to the garden and you really care about us. Father, you are the father of all comfort. You care to comfort us, your children. And so here we are, God. God, where, where, where we've been judges of you, I've done it so much. I pray you would liberate us. And we would just turn away from doing that. Father, could you help us to see the good you're doing? To build up our faith. And help us not to grow weary in doing good. And Father, would you comfort us, give us strength, and empower us to pass on the blessing to those around us. In Jesus' name.